Okay. Here we go, everybody. Welcome back. Hope you had a good five-minute break. It's good to see you guys connecting with each other and saying hello and good morning and hopefully meeting people, making friends. Yeah, cool. I never know what to do with that, like, minute, because you're not going to hear what I say. But I also, I got, if I make jokes, it feels like the wrong time to do that. I don't even know that I'm that funny. So, anyway. But we did it. Now you can hear me, and you're all mostly back at your seats, and hopefully you have a Bible nearby. If you have a phone or a tablet, that's great, too. Uh, we're going to be in Leviticus today. Yeah, lucky us. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, it's going to take a minute to get there, so just bear with me. I want to try to slow burn the sermon. I'll tell you why in a second, but I want to really give us all as many opportunities as possible to grab on to where we're going and to have a little bit of a reference point for why this is necessary. Why does a church have to talk about things like this? Uh, my objective today is to get back on track with where we were two weeks ago. Um, last week, well, Friday before last, I woke up in the morning and could tell that something was not right with my body, and so I had to call Tyler Wolf at around lunchtime and say, hey, Tyler, you know how I always tell you that you should have a backup sermon ready to go at a moment's notice? It's time. And thankfully, he was willing to do that. So I want to thank him in front of all of you guys that he was willing to jump in on very short notice and do what is exceedingly challenging, uh, which is step in out of nowhere, preach a standalone sermon with no real context, and especially on a Sunday that I've been telling people for weeks is supposed to be this heavy, kind of scary, really meaningful, challenging sermon about abuse and forgiveness. So I thought he did really well, and I appreciate him for doing that, and I want to say that in front of you guys. But what we're going to do today is what we would have done last week if I hadn't gotten the stomach flu. So today will be part three of a four-part series on forgiveness as a practice, as a discipline. We have defined spiritual disciplines as things that we do in cooperation with God that if we will do them will change us. They will make us ready and able to be obedient to God and not obedient to God out of shame, not obedient to God out of fear or guilt or to score points with other people, but obedient to God out of love for God. And that's the piece I think we lose a lot of times when we talk about spiritual disciplines is we feel like it's just a grind and I just have to do it because it's the right thing to do. If our spiritual practices, if our disciplines are not anchored in a love for God, then they won't be very productive. They will probably turn into some kind of good work that we do to earn something. Whether we think we're earning that with God or with people, it doesn't really matter. Either way, it'll be very much a underselling of what a discipline could be. A discipline could be practicing being in God's presence, practicing being near to God. And so what I've tried to do for two weeks is lay a foundation for all of us on how forgiveness can be a practice. And I'm doing that because what I suspect is true is that for many of us, forgiveness is a feeling, maybe. And we know it's an action, too, but especially like we talked about two weeks ago in part two, many of us misunderstand forgiveness as being dependent upon someone else's apology. In other words, we wait for someone else to say, I'm sorry, and that's sort of the starting gun on our own forgiveness process. And from my perspective, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. It's not what God intends. It's really not the way that you are wired. You are wired to have the capacity, with God's help, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, to be able to forgive a person, maybe before they even know that they have wronged you, or before they can admit that they're wrong, etc., etc. Our objective, then, is to learn if forgiveness is a spiritual discipline, it's to learn to practice forgiveness with God, in conjunction with God, not of our own strength, so that over time we become better prepared to be obedient to God out of love for God. If, if it's a spiritual discipline, then it has to meet that definition. So how does that work? How can forgiveness become something that disciplines us? How can we become prepared in practicing small acts of forgiveness over a long period of time with great consistency? How does that get us ready to forgive big stuff? 
stuff that's really, really hard. What I want to do today is talk about the biggest stuff, the hardest, most painful, scariest category of how another person can wrong you. It's not unintentionally wronging you. Uh, it's not wronging you because they acted in a fit of passion. What I want to talk to you about today is what you do when you arrive at the point that you have been abused, or to use the Bible's word, oppressed. When a person has used an advantage that they have over you to take something from you, to violate your boundaries, and probably has done it methodically, calculatingly, and very much on purpose. Sometimes I think that we expect the Bible to treat that as its own category of wrong. We'll find out today if that's true or not. I think even in churches we have this idea that if somebody hurts you bad enough, then sort of the rules or the guidelines for how you navigate that go out the window and you're given permission to do something totally different than you would do if it was a smaller, lesser evil that was done to you. Maybe that's true. We'll find out today from God's word what God has to say about that. Now, a lot of what I'm going to say to you today is sourced from other people that are, who are much smarter than me, who have a lot to say on this topic, and so I want to share with you four significant sources that have really helped me, not just in this sermon's preparation, but navigating the idea of abuse in general, and not just abuse, but really abuse within the context of a church. If you don't know, unfortunately, a large percentage of people, at least in the West, in the United States, who abuse other people, they do it from a position of authority within the church whether they are a lay person serving as a deacon or a lay elder, or they're paid on staff in a ministerial or pastoral position. Unfortunately, and I hate that it's true, and I know God hates it too, there are many men and women who bear the title of spiritual leader who use that leadership and that authority and that access that they have to people who are oftentimes going through the worst possible circumstances. That's what brought them to church in the first place. And those predators prey on those weak people out of the context of their leadership. And so specifically, the writings, books two and three of Diane Langberg have been fabulously helpful for me in not only navigating how that happens, but how you fix that, but most importantly, how do you prevent that? And how does a person like me who works at a church and frankly has a lot of spiritual authority in your life, whether I think I should or not, whether I want to or not, how do I become the kind of person that doesn't wield that wrongly, that doesn't wield that in a way that is damaging or hurtful or ultimately negative, that would get in between you and the gospel, get in between you and Jesus and clog that up? Uh, by way of my own selfishness. So you've probably heard of Is It Abuse by Darby Strickland before. If you haven't, it's a book that the majority of our life group leaders have read. Uh, we read through it, all of our life group leaders and our elders, a couple of years ago, and it was very, very helpful. Um, Darby's book speaks specifically into the context of domestic abuse, which is the prevailing form of abuse in the United States. The, the vast majority of abuse cases that are on record, which is far fewer than the actual number that exist for various reasons, uh, exist in the home between spouses. And so Darby helps us give words and, and language and definitions to that experience uh, and kind of tries to, to take away the crazy making that can happen when the person in your life who loves you the most and is supposed to be supportive is, whether on purpose or not, actually tearing you down and wearing away at your uh, boundaries and your sense of self and your identity. So that's very helpful. Like I said, Diane Langberg's two books are great on dealing with power dynamics and abuse in the church, specifically redeeming power. It's kind of a double entendre. She is talking about redeeming power, but she's also talking about how to redeem power itself. How can churches that uniquely have to be able to manage and, and carry leadership and the weight of other people's spiritual well-being, how can they do that in a way that honors Christ and that cares for those uh, who may find themselves in the crossfire of abuse? And then Timothy Keller's book, Forgive, has been very helpful to me throughout this whole series. So if you read it, uh, you'll probably find that there's a lot of similarities between the things I've said and several of the chapters in that book. But when we're talking specifically about abuse, chapters six and seven of that book, if you were to pick it up and wanted to go right to the heart of the issue, uh, Tim deals with power dynamics, abuse in the church, 
justice, God's perspective on justice, weighing that against our desire to kind of take justice into our own hands. Very, very helpful, very illuminating. So that's what's behind the sermon that you're about to hear. That's what's supporting me. That's the background. I did not make all these things up. I'm not an expert in this area. I'm going to do my best to present to you what the Bible has to say and try to take into account people who have a lot more experience and are more qualified than me in presenting this to you today. So with that sort of background behind what's going on, I want to, uh, if I can, define for you what abuse is. We should agree to what that means if we're going to talk about it for the next 30 minutes and change. That should be one of our first objectives. So um, if I can, I want to read a quick quote to you from Is It Abuse by Darby Strickland. Here's what she says. She says that abuse occurs when one person pursues their own interests, so we know what that's like, selfishness, okay, but they do that by seeking to control the other person or dominate the other person through a pattern of coercion, control, and punishment. So I'll take that idea and just kind of make it simpler and easier for you to remember. This is what I would say. I would say abuse happens when desires become demands. So when what I want from you or what I want for you is no longer something I'm communicating as a, hey, I wish you would consider this, or I would like you to consider these things, or could we change this together? Could we work together? That's fine, even if we don't agree on whether that desire is appropriate or not. It's okay for me, in the context of relationship, to ask a person, especially in a marriage, hey, can we talk about this? Can we do this differently? Can Can we make a plan? Where it becomes abusive is when I say, you have to. You don't have a choice. You're going to do this. I'm taking this away from you. I'm limiting your ability. I'm, I'm taking another adult and I'm diminishing them in my home to the position of a child so that I'm treating them as if I'm the ultimate authority. Or worse than that, if I don't have an existing relationship with a peer, if what's happening is an adult is abusing a child, then I'm using that natural power, the size of my body, my authority, my physical strength, my smarter, more available mind than what a child has, and I'm warping and manipulating their reality to convince them to give me something that they shouldn't give me. And you can fill in the blank on that. I made a commitment to you a couple weeks ago. We're not going to get explicit today, and we won't. But you know what I'm talking about. I think you do. Uh, And if you don't, it's easy for you to find out today. And maybe that would be the first step coming out of this sermon. If you feel that abuse only exists a million miles away in other people's lives, you'd probably be surprised the number of people that you rub shoulders with who've had things taken from them against their will and been taken advantage of. So when we talk about abuse today, we're talking about a person demanding something from someone else that is inappropriate for them to demand that they don't have any right to, that they shouldn't take by force, but they are willing to take by force. To kind of build on that, here's a quote from Darby's book. She says, oppressors demand that others love and serve them. Ordinary entitlement, which we're familiar with, we're selfish people, we know what happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Mankind said to God, I know better than you and I'll take what's mine and you don't get to tell me what to do. So we bring that mindset into our relationship with God. We shouldn't be surprised that people are going to bring that mindset into their relationships with other people as well. Darby's right. That's ordinary. But here's what she says. She says, ordinary entitlement becomes pernicious. And that's kind of a $10 word that basically means harmful in a subtle way. Like it's hard to tell if you're being hurt. So that ordinary entitlement becomes subtly harmful when it does what? When it leads a person to punish those who stand in the way of their demands. She gives three quick examples in her book. She says that oppressors deflect all blame. So when confronted, no, 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 it's what you did. It's what you did to me that caused me to have no choice but to treat you that way. So that's number one. Number two, they can't admit wrongdoing. They, they cannot say that they're culpable at all. They blame the victim, which is sort of part of the normal strategy of an abuser. And then finally, they rationalize their punishing behaviors as being appropriate. They say, well, if you'd been through what I've been through, then you would do what I had done as well. There's no sense of agency. There's no sense of responsibility. There's an unwillingness to say, maybe there's another better way 
to react, even if I've been put in a crisis position. Maybe there's another better way. So for the victim, which is really who we want to think about today, because that's the person who has some forgiving to do, we think. For the victim, the one who's been oppressed, they experience a kind of insanity at the hands of their abuser. And this is a key concept. If you've never been taken advantage of, you haven't been abused, try to imagine what it would be like to live in this every day. Not just to have a person sort of fly by your life once a week, like a person at work that you don't get along with but you can mostly avoid, but imagine if it was in the air that you were breathing in your home, in the water that you were swimming in, if you will, to be made crazy at the hands of your abuser, to find that things like trust and empathy that are supposed to be the building blocks for healthy relationships instead become deadly weaknesses. Things that you could never afford to extend to anyone ever again because the one, that one time in your life that you did open yourself up to someone else and make yourself vulnerable, they reached in and they smashed and they grabbed and they stole and they took. So one of the great tragedies of abuse is that it turns your natural human wiring, the things that are supposed to make you open to other people in relationship, and it makes them liabilities in your mind. You, you, you can't afford to open yourself up. And so you try to, and oftentimes a, a person who's been made a victim will create a persona that they can project in social situations that looks and sounds very confident and very open and warm, but the real them is locked in a cage inside. And nobody's ever going to be able to touch that person again because of what happened way back whenever it was that that horrible thing was perpetrated against that victim. Oftentimes the mind or the spirit of a person who's been abused will break. Sometimes they heal, but for most people they carry scars their whole life. The demands, the punishments of the person who took advantage of them leave marks on that person. Now, I want to give you, like I said earlier, the ability to grab onto this. For some of you, this is compelling because you've had this experience or you're close to someone who has, and you know this is real and you know that it's urgent and that churches especially have to talk about this and deal with it. But for some of us, I just know that you're starting to lean back, even if you're not physically leaning back. I'm not watching you. I'm not taking notes. But even if you're, you're starting to feel kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go where this is going. I hear a lot of talk in politics about power dynamics and abusers and oppressors and victims. What I want you to understand is those words are ideas and concepts that have been in human history forever. And, and we're going to offload together right now. We're just going to agree to not define any of those things the way that the political world would want to do that in 2023. What we're going to do is go to the Bible and we're going to ask God what happens when a person takes advantage of another person. And we're going to try to understand from his perspective how we can heal how there could possibly be a way forward out of that that looks like healing and what's required to do that. So I want to tell you a story to kind of help all of us have a place to lock our hands here around this idea and move forward together. In 2018, five years ago, a young woman named Rachel Den Hollander did something really courageous. Rachel had been on the junior United States Olympics gymnastics team uh, when she was a preteen, which is the typical age of a lot of those girls when they're training. Uh, and in 2018, she went very public and accused a man named Larry Nasser of an extended period in her life, it was about six months, of regular, almost daily abuse. And the nature of the abuse in her life was sexual. What he had done to her was very inappropriate. And he used his access to her body as a physician, a doctor, a trusted adult in the life of her parents. And it was devastating for Rachel. It took her a long time to realize that that shouldn't have happened. At the time that this was perpetrated against her, she didn't have any words for what it was. She didn't even know why it was wrong. She couldn't tell you in language that you would understand as an adult how this was a violation of her trust or her personal boundaries or herself in any way at all. But as she had grown old enough now as an adult, she knew. She knew what shouldn't have happened and she knew that it shouldn't have happened and she knew that he would continue to do it unless somebody was brave enough to speak up. She had to overcome the stigma of being known as the girl who was abused. Nobody wants that label. 
That's the great fear of people who've been victimized, is either this will chase me or follow me the rest of my life, no one will ever see me as anything more than damaged goods, or if you're young enough and your abuser has a lot of power over you, you stay quiet because they promise to do horrible things to you and your loved ones and your pets and whatever else if you speak up. Rachel was brave enough to punch through those things and to come forward and to accuse Larry Nasser. Across the next 18 months, over 150 other women joined her. And what we all found out together when the news finally broke this story is that for more than 30 years, Larry Nasser had used his access to young women to do terrible things. And not only had he done terrible things, but every person in authority in the lives of these girls had been notified at one point or another, and none of them had taken it seriously. To the point, my friends, look it up today if you want to. It's devastating. The Federal Bureau of Investigation had to admit on the record that they had intentionally mishandled this case at different points. There were people in power who had a chance to help, and it was more important to them to not disrupt the system and get in the way of potential gold medals than to step up and take this predator down for the sake of these girls. They were unwilling to dismantle the program that gave him power. This is often the case. Unfortunately for Rachel, she writes in her memoir, which is called What is a Girl Worth? And I can't recommend it to you necessarily because it could be devastating for some of you based on your experience. But she writes in this book about how in this moment of crisis, when she finally mustered the strength and the courage to speak up about what had happened to her, she thought as a Christian that she could turn to the church and have the church be what it proclaims to be, a safe place for broken people. A place full of men and women who've sworn allegiance to Jesus and therefore are fierce in their pursuit of justice. A place that would never grant access to an abuser, that would never set a person up who's weak or has already been victimized to be re-victimized and re-oppressed and re-abused. And instead, what she found was that the majority culture in Western churches, because she's an American like you are, was the opposite of that. This was shocking to me. This was a revelation in my life a couple of years ago when I first started taking this idea seriously was the fact that people like Diane Langberg would even have to write multiple books on something like this. Wouldn't one short book that simply says do the right thing and don't get it wrong and do whatever it takes to do what's right no matter who you offend or who you make mad, isn't that that the recipe? It seems obvious to me, but it hasn't been obvious to many people many places. Rachel later in life became an advocate for women who've been abused, women and children who are primarily the victims in the West of abuse. And she writes in her memoir about some of the different scenarios that she came up against as she tried to advocate for people who had been abused in the context of churches. She says that, unfortunately, churches often routinely mishandled sexual assault allegations, that they would counsel victims to forgive and forget, not listening when alarm bells were sounded about someone's behavior, and even, many victims alleged, interfering with, churches interfering with, or being negative toward criminal investigations. She says that there was a common teaching in many churches on things like unity, forgiveness, and grace, that under the banner of those things, what actually was happening is that abusers were being quote-unquote forgiven while victims were silenced by being characterized as being bitter. Maybe you and I haven't participated in this personally, But this woman has looked at a very broad cross-section of evangelical churches in America in the last five years and has found that the prevailing attitude is that we have failed. So what does someone like Rachel do? What do you do when you go to the place where everybody sings about Jesus and they close their eyes and they lift their hands and they dream of being in heaven with him and they are so unwilling to take one simple step of bringing the justice of God to earth? Where do you turn? In Rachel's memoir, she lays out three paths, essentially, that she feels a person can walk if they've been abused, two of which she warns against, and she draws directly on God's word, which is where we're going to go next, and one of which she recommends, which is harder, but is the only path of healing. 
The Bible speaks to how we feel when we've been abused. The Bible speaks to what we lose when we've had something taken from us like this and how we often feel like responding, and this brings us to Leviticus chapter 19. The context of the book of Leviticus is God has set his people free from abuse and oppression. He's done the work. He's gone to bat for them. For them. Early in the story of the Exodus, Moses writes in his account of what God did that God heard his people's cries for help, and he saw the oppression in their lives, and it, it moved him. God is emotional, whether you think he should be or not, whether you think Christians should be or not, God feels things sometimes. And in that moment, he felt like he was going to do whatever it took to set these people free. And so the story of the Exodus is him contending with the mindset of an oppressor. The, the, the greatest narcissist in human history is the pharaoh of Egypt, the man who believed he himself was a god and could step into the courtroom of the divine and argue with Yahweh and find a way around Yahweh's rules. Eventually, Yahweh takes him down by way of toppling the ten strongest and most prominent idol gods in the Egyptian culture. And when he sets his people free, the Israelites cross over the Jordan River, the Egyptians are crushed and drowned, and they're free. And what do they do right away? they'd start to treat each other just like the Egyptians treated them. They take on the character of their abuser. They don't know better. It's where they come from. It's the water they've been swimming in. It's the air they've been breathing for hundreds of years. Generations of them can only see the world through the dynamics of power. And so the strongest, most wealthy, most important begin to mistreat others. God has to speak severely against them going out and stealing other people from other tribes and enslaving them and starting to build their own mini Egyptian kingdom. It's in that context that he's speaking into the hearts and minds of these people, and that's where we're going to pick it up in Leviticus 19. God is giving his people cheat codes. He is giving them the hack on how you heal and how you move forward, and it's harder than we want it to be, but it's an option that we have even today. He says this. He says, you shall not, speaking to his people, hate your brother in your heart. That's really hard, okay? He goes on to say, you must surely rebuke your fellow citizen so that you do not incur sin on account of him. We're gonna come back to that in a minute. That's a really good verse that a lot of us ignore and that churches could do well to like, print at the very front of their policy handbooks on how to handle when people come forward and accuse others of being abusive. Verse 18, God says, you must not take vengeance. You must not bear a grudge against any of your own people, but you must love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. And that's kind of a weird way to end a set of rules, but it's very common in Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament law. What God is saying is he's saying, I am that I am. That's the name he gave Moses at the burning bush early in the book of Exodus. We say Yahweh, that's our best approximation of how to say that name. We don't actually know how to say it in Hebrew. But what God says to Moses when he meets Moses is the same thing he's saying here. He's saying, I am the basis of existence. I am almost a living other dimension that you can't wrap your mind around. Everything that is, is because I am. I was first, and nothing that is would be if I was not first here, which is confusing, but it's true. The longer you think about it, the more you go, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. What is God doing? He's saying, you must live this way. I designed all of this. You must live this way. I know what I'm talking about. You must live this way. I am giving you, like if you guys had a Super Nintendo, this is up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, start, select, A, B. This is the cheat code to how you heal. This is how you move forward. God is saying, there are a million other ways to do this. But I designed you. I know what's going to happen to you. I've seen your past. I know where you came from. I know your future. I know what's going to happen to you later. The only way forward is this recipe. And it's scary, and it's harder than we want it to be, and it requires that we be deeply rooted in our identity in Christ or we will absolutely fail. Because here's what happens. When someone abuses you, it doesn't just hurt your feelings. It changes you. 
People can change other people. I think you know this. The Bible speaks to who your friends are, who you hang out with. God again and again advises his people to stay away from certain other kinds of people if they're unrepentant because of how it will mold and change them. Sometimes people can have a positive influence on you, and it takes a long time. Sometimes people can have a negative influence on you, and that takes a long time. But sometimes an abuser breaks through all those walls and reaches into a part of your life that you didn't give them access to, and they break something. And you can't just fix it. You can't just go, ouch, it's not like I'll put a band-aid on that and in four or five days it'll scab up and then I'll forget that it ever happened to me. It is a fundamental identity level shift that breaks inside of someone when they've been taken advantage to this degree. That means you don't just grieve what happened to you, you also grieve what you lost because of what happened to you. You grieve who you could have been. Like Rachel Den Hollander, you have to look yourself in the mirror and go, can anyone ever see me as more than damaged goods ever again? I don't know. But that question will probably haunt me, will probably haunt her for the rest of her life. This is common. This is not the edge case when it comes to abuse. This is what it means to be abused. The reason that abuse is so deplorable to God is, yes, it breaks lots of his laws, but it starts, it starts by refusing to acknowledge the image of God in another person. It is a flat refusal to give another person any dignity at all, to treat them as if they are worthless, to treat them as if they are a thing, an object, a means to an end, or at worst, just a liability. It's the dehumanization of another person inside the abuser's heart before they ever act on them. And because that abuser makes that decision, they extend that into the life of the person who's been abused, and that abuse victim then begins to wonder if that's really true. Is that right? Because not everybody gets taken advantage of the way that I did. So is there something wrong with me? Was I too weak? Should I have done something different? Is it my fault? These are the questions that haunt us when someone has taken advantage of us. Your sense of self shifts. Your boundaries break. Your dignity may be gone. This sort of feeling of safety and security that a lot of us live with, we just kind of feel naturally calm and naturally okay, that can be robbed from a person. And then they're left with 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of living without that. And we worry about, we wonder, why do they act so erratically? Why are they not clear? Why can't they always communicate exactly what happened to them or why it happened? Why do the facts change? Why do the details change? Because they are living in a 24-7 emotional earthquake. That's why. That's what someone does to someone else when they step across that line and say, I will take that whether you want me to or not. And the whole time I do it, I'm going to tear you down, I'm going to rip you in half, I'm going to wear you down to nothing so that you comply with me, so that you participate in it on some level. That's what I want from you. The reason that a person who has been abused often carries deep anger in their spirit is because so much more was taken from them than just the act of abuse itself. A life is changed. A life is taken in, in some ways. It's that severe. And so out of that anger, it can feel not only understandable to hate your abuser, it can feel necessary to hate your abuser. That hatred can be a fire in you. It can be fuel that motivates and protects you in the future. Where you say, unless I hate this person to the degree that I do now, unless I allow this seething hot anger to boil down and cool into hatred in my heart, I could be victimized again. I might not protect myself. I might not fight as hard as I have to to keep other people from preying on me the way that I've been preyed on this time. But what does our Father say to us? Our Father says that that's not true. That the lie that that pain is telling us is that that hatred will be an effective tool when in fact it leads to two paths of self-destruction. The first thing that God says to people who have been hurt, his cheat code, his hack to healing is do not hate your neighbor in your heart. Do not settle with that. Do not make peace with hatred. Do not be okay with hatred. Do not allow the wrong that was done against you to be multiplied out into other people's lives because you are living with hatred in your heart. 
the lie that vengeance tells us is that vengeance is a kind of justice. The lie that revenge tells us, that this hatred tells us, is that if we would hurt the other person as bad as they've hurt us, that we could even the scales. But in fact, all we do is cause the damage to be doubled now. Now we've taken this evil that's been perpetrated against us, which should never have happened. And God is clear about that. He has justice. He sees everything that happens, and he will demand that all pay the price for what they've done. This is why we need Jesus at the cross, because our sin is so devastating and prevalent in every area of our lives. So God's not letting abusers off the hook, but he's speaking specifically here to the one who has been damaged. And he's implying that if you take that abuse on and allow it to characterize you and then multiply it, all you've done is spread the influence of that person that, in theory, you're supposed to be hating and defending yourself from and and you would never want to become like. He says the beginning of this is hatred, so don't. Don't harbor hatred in your heart. Hatred in your heart is the root of two paths, the first of of which is the path of vengeance. This is what Rachel writes about in her book. She says, when the church failed me, I thought the only way forward was revenge. I began to plot and find ways to take down Larry Nassar and everybody else who failed me in the justice system so that they would pay the price to the nth degree. I thought that they could pay me back by being hurt themselves. And she was tempted to go that way. She illustrates in her book of the 150 plus other women who came forward, many of whom gave themselves over to the path of vengeance. And many of those ladies found themselves self-destructing along the way entering into patterns of addiction, entering into patterns of their own abuse, because when you embrace hatred, you are miserable. Our hearts are not designed for hatred to fit in there very long. There's not room for it. And so we have to warp and stretch and change and kind of do surgery on ourselves to make space for that growing hatred to stay bottled up inside of us. And so we have to medicate how that feels with bad relationships, with substances, with alcohol, with all kinds of things. And so without meaning to, We take on not just the pain and the behavior of the abuser, but eventually we take on the character of that person. We become just like the person that we're seeking to to avenge ourselves against. Vengeance is close at hand for you and I because vengeance is essentially the oldest way that people have of making a wrong right. Think back to the very beginning of the Bible. The very first murder in human history, a brother named Cain kills his brother named Abel, and he does it. Why? Because he's been made to feel shame because his honor has been attacked and torn down. Abel didn't even do anything to Cain directly. They both brought an offering to God. God was pleased with Abel's offering. He wasn't pleased with Cain's, and Cain began to seethe in anger, not because Abel attacked him or burned all of his crops or went to war with his people or did anything horrible like that, because Cain's honor was compromised. He was made to feel embarrassed. He was made to feel ashamed. And so out of that shame, out of that embarrassment, he wanted revenge. He wanted to act on the way he had been made to feel and do damage against the person that he saw as his oppressor. In Genesis 4, Yahweh spoke to Cain, and he says some very similar things to what he says in Leviticus 19, because he's the same God and his rules never change. He says to Cain in Genesis 4, 6, he asks him a question first. He says, why are you angry? And why is your expression downcast? Now that may sound condescending because you would think like I do. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the answer to that. Why is he asking? I think God's asking for the same reason he's always asking because he wants to give you a chance to speak. He doesn't need the information that you're going to give him. It's a relationship question. So he's asking into that relationship, what's going on? Talk to me about this. And then he goes on to say, is it not true, Cain, that if you do what is right, that you will be fine? You'll be okay. If you can master the way that you feel and reject this hatred, then your life will continue on the path it's on and everything will be fine. Isn't that true for you, Cain? Now, we don't get Cain's answer, but I can imagine him saying, if I do what is right, what about the wrong that's been propagated against me? 
What are we talking about that? You're going to talk to me about me, God? Talk to me about this wound I'm carrying from this arrogant brother of mine who thinks he gets everything right and he's going to shame me and embarrass me and rub my face in the mud in front of my brothers and my parents and the rest of the people around us? Let's talk about that. But God, that's not the conversation God wants to have. That, that would be God's business, what happens to that person. God speaks to Cain about himself. And he speaks to those of us who have been wounded in the same way. We can't control what our abusers do. We can't control if they continue to abuse, and we can waste a lot of our lives trying to do that. What we can control is what we do with the wound that we've been given. And what God says to Cain is, if you do not do what is right, in this case, Leviticus 19, if you harbor hatred in your heart, then sin is crouching at the door. It's waiting for you. All God's enemy wants to do is to have that evil that was put in your life against your will multiplied exponentially by you taking on the character and the behavior of your abuser. That's what Satan wants. He wants a whole lot of reasons to tell you that you're too bad to save. He wants a whole lot of reasons to confirm to you that your suspicions are true and you are only damaged goods and all you'll ever be is trash in everybody else's eyes. He wants to convince you to live in a way where other people begin to treat you like that so that he can confirm the suspicions that were underneath it the whole time. God says, this thing desires to dominate you. That's what hatred wants to do. Hatred has its own agenda. It's not justice. It's to ruin you. It wants to dominate you, but you must subdue it. So what does God say? He says, do not hate your neighbor and do not take vengeance. The second path that hatred leaves us to is the path of contempt. This one's a little harder to talk about because I think that in polite Christian circles, this is kind of acceptable sometimes. We are okay. We, if somebody got up right now in this service and drew a sword from their hip and began slashing at someone else saying, I'm having my vengeance. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. You've heard the thing, right? If that happened, first we'd think it was a joke. Then we'd see the blood and realize it isn't a joke. It's our worst nightmare. And we would all have a problem with it. And we would rush to the defense of that person who was being attacked, probably. And we would try to detain the person with the sword, get the sword away, call the police. It'd be horrible. It'd be a tragedy, right? None of us would tolerate it. No one would sit back and go, I never liked that guy anyway. You know, I probably, he, had it, he probably had it coming. However, if one or two or a family of us or a life group was, of us shared a mutual angst against another person and chose to have contempt in our heart against them, we would sit here and never worry about it. We would be so comfortable, so willing to go, you know what, they probably deserve that. Vengeance leads to us attacking a person physically. Contempt is treating them like they're already dead. Contempt is coldness in your heart toward another person. It's saying to them, you don't exist anymore. You don't matter to me. My hatred has cooled like lava, and now it's stone. Now my heart is totally a rock when it comes to you, and I won't, I won't come to your defense. I won't help you when you need help. I will never speak positively when you're not around. I will encourage other people to go against you. I'll undermine the trust that you have in this community. I'll do everything I can to wash your feet out from underneath you, and nobody will ever know because of what you did to me. That's contempt. Contempt is another way to go. Contempt is another path that hatred leads us toward to, to, for many of us, try as best we can to grapple with our pain by not embracing vengeance. I think sometimes we think this is maybe the only option. If we're not going to have our physical revenge against the person who hurt us, then making peace with contempt is good enough for us. Contempt is often more socially acceptable than vengeance because it allows a victim to punish their oppressor without becoming excessively angry in a way that is obvious. And contempt is one of the fruit that we sort of pick off the branches of our own lives when we've allowed bitterness to take root in our hearts. It's one of the best ways to know. If you feel that contempt has grown in you, that's an indicator. You're getting a, a glimpse in the spiritual mirror of your own life to understand that probably you've been bitter for a long time. And you've just made peace with that because you don't know another way to go. You won't go the way of vengeance. 
that feels very animal and uncivilized and, and you wouldn't want to deal with the social stigma of that, so you'll just make peace in your heart with hating this person until one of you dies. That's contempt. Whereas vengeance is driven by a desire to restore your own honor or your own dignity by using power to attack, contempt is driven by a desire to be more reasonable than that and to use logic and to build relational walls between you and the person who has hurt you so that you can treat them like they don't exist. So again, think back to Rachel. What do you choose? You'd like the church to be the place you can heal. You'd like the church to be the place that you find answers, and yet it's failed you. Every other secular authority has failed you. Do you go the way of vengeance, or do you go the way of contempt? Sometimes it can feel like those are our only two options, and I think that's part of why we often go the way of contempt, is it feels like it's not as bad on the scale of hatred as vengeance is. For someone like Rachel, who who is a Christian, who wants to reject both of these paths, unfortunately, she had to go around the church and go straight to God to figure out what he would have her do. Because the church was not a good example, because church people and church leaders were not having these conversations, they were spending the time they should have been spending investigating, reading and preparing, denying and blocking and ignoring. She couldn't allow those people to have influence. She couldn't let them lead her down the wrong path. And so she had to go to God's word. And she did. And there she found a third path. Where God tells us, do not harbor hatred because it will lead you to vengeance, it will lead you to bear a grudge, God also recommends in these two verses what we should do. So I want to read them to you again. He says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You must rebuke your fellow citizen so that you do not incur sin on account of him. This is my first of two caveats in this sermon. Maybe you didn't know that there is a Bible verse that calls all of us to account when we know someone has been abusive and we choose to say nothing about it. There's no neutrality in abuse. There's not. Now, you can do your best to wait. You should find out what the facts are. You should come to the immediate defense of the person who says that they're in danger and get them out of danger, and then do some fact-finding and figure out what's really going on. Absolutely. Absolutely, you should. But if you know someone has been wrong, if you know that a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or, God forbid, any other number of church positions has wronged a child, an adult, their spouse in the privacy of their own home, their own children, other people on staff, other volunteers. If you know that that has happened and you choose to sit back and be quiet because you're scared to death of what it would do to the church or what it would do to that person or you're convinced that maybe it was a one-time mistake and it's not really who they are, God says, rebuke them. Why? Because if you don't, you might be guilty too. Let that be a challenge to you. Let that give you a little bit of courage. If, God forbid, a time comes where you have to pull a Rachel Den Hollander and push through that fear and that stigma to speak up and speak out about something that has happened to you. God says that's the right way. He says it's the path forward. In verse 18, we find the third path of the three ways that we can deal with our abuse. He says, don't take vengeance, don't bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because he's God. That's why he gets to say that. Because he cares about justice. When everybody else in your life doesn't and they don't believe you and they can't see it, God does. He knows and he's right there. And he'll do a better job than any of the people would have done had you been able to convince them and change their mind. He is your advocate because he made you and you bear his image. And especially if you are a Christian, now you're covered by his blood. You are doubly his. You are his in every possible way. We had our children memorize as part of the New City Catechism this first question, what is my only hope in life and death? That I'm not my own, I belong to God. If you belong to God, then when someone abuses you, they're not just sinning against you, they are abusing one of God's possessions, one of his people, someone who matters so much to him that he died for them. If you don't think God is gonna make that right, either in eternity or before eternity starts, you're wrong, he will. 
He will have justice. He will pursue this. I want you to notice especially the closing phrase of verse 18. Yahweh says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if I surveyed all of you right now, I bet most of us wouldn't say that Old Testament God the Father is the person who comes to mind when we hear love your neighbor as yourself. We would probably raise our hand and say, that sounds a lot like Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth. And you'd be right. Jesus says again and again in the Gospels that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Here's just four quick examples. Verbatim, love your neighbor as yourself. Twice in Matthew, once in Mark, and again in Luke. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is not a new idea. This is not a new covenant idea. This is the same teaching that God has given human beings from the beginning of time. That loving your neighbor as yourself is a critical, like, core principle of how we do life as people, not even just as Christians, as human beings. And that if we cannot do that, if we cannot extend empathy and understanding, we will die. Our bodies may live, but our souls will shrivel. This is the third path, the path of forgiveness. It's the hardest, it hurts the most, it's the scariest, because it requires us to figure out what to do without our abuser maybe ever taking responsibility, maybe never being held accountable. Maybe we never have the opportunity to rebuke that person as God recommends. Maybe it's a hit and run. It's a sleepover, it's a hotel room, it's a, it's a school trip, it's something where an adult had access and then they were gone and we don't even know their name, we can't really describe them. We have to still figure out how to live. God's intention is not for Christians to be weak. This is not weakness. God's intention is for Christians to be strong, to be the strongest people that exist. That indwelled by the Holy Spirit's power, we have access to things like forgiveness that other people can never do. They can't pull it off. Don't see this and tell yourself, that sounds weak, that sounds passive, that sounds wimpy, that sounds like spineless and no backbone. No, it's the way into life. And if you do it, it'll be way harder than attacking the person who hurt you or hating them quietly in your heart until one of you dies. Far, far harder. But what's on the other side of that forgiveness is you. All of those things that that abuser took from you, God can give back and more. Those scars, those wounds, the places that you've been damaged, God can heal and correct. He designed and built you the first time. He can rebuild you even better. This is what is possible. This is what is available. When we do the hard work of working with a counselor, of dealing with our past, of naming things and confronting them and thinking, this instance shouldn't even be this big of a deal. Like there's an element of taking on shame, of bearing shame and embarrassment that some small little moment has impacted our life to this degree. We think, we minimize it in our own heads. But if we will work through that and walk through this and ask God to give us the capacity to grow forward, he'll do it. He doesn't command things in his law that he doesn't intend us to do. From the beginning, his plan has been that you reject that hatred, that you don't walk the path of either vengeance or contempt, and that you find a way out of love for self extended to others to heal. That's his intention for you. The answer to the question of what happens at the crossroads between abuse and forgiveness is that by the grace of God alone, covered in the blood of Jesus and empowered by his Holy Spirit, you can forgive. You can do what no other abuse victim without God can ever do. You can get out from underneath the cloud, you can get out from underneath the stigma, and you can be made new by Jesus. He will do that for you. It will be devastatingly hard because it will require you to face and confront and speak about things that would be so much easier to try to ignore. But if you ignore those things, that's a path that leads to death. And God doesn't want you dead. He doesn't want you just hanging on for dear life, hoping and waiting that things will get better in eternity. His intention, he said so, is that you would have life and have it abundantly. 
And unfortunately, when someone has wronged us to that level, the path into the abundant life is hard. It's harder than it should have to be, and that's the weight of sin, and it simply magnifies the majesty of what Jesus did at the cross by taking that on for you and I. So that's how I want to finish today. In 2018, after these accusations came out, Rachel Den Hollander and her husband, Jacob, wrote a, a paper, an article. It's a theological treatise. I'm not going to read anywhere near the whole thing to you, but you can look it up if you want to. I want to read an excerpt to you from this because they're going to say this better than I ever could about the value and the majesty of the cross of Jesus Christ for those who have been taken advantage of. Here's what they say. The devastating impact of abuse in large part is due to the fact that abuse upends the concepts that are necessary to function as a relational person. Here's what those concepts are. Trust, safety, security, love, compassion, and care. Good things twisted by a perpetrator and wielded like weapons to facilitate violation at the deepest level. The cross, however, stands in stark opposition to the behavior of an abuser. It provides the ultimate example of each of those concepts that trust, the safety, security, love, the compassion, and care. Each of those things that abuse destroys. In the incarnation, meaning God becoming man, at the cross where that God-man dies, the Son sets aside his divine prerogatives, all of the power that would have protected him that the abuse victim didn't have, And that's why, in part, they were able to be taken advantage of. Jesus willingly sets those things aside. And in that moment, they wrote, the strong becomes weak. I would say the strongest becomes weak. I am Yahweh, God says. The the foundation of existence becomes a person that can be beaten within an inch of his life and taken advantage of. There is no greater exchange of strength for weakness ever. At the cross, God acts on behalf of others in opposition to the perpetrator who acts against others for themselves. To overcome evil, God acts. To uphold justice, to free the enslaved, and to restore creation. God himself perfectly identifies with the victim because he himself has willingly subjected himself to injustice. The cross is the ultimate repudiation of the idea that power is to be wielded for the benefit and pleasure of those who possess it. The ultimate rejection of that idea. In the cross, victims have the framework and the foundation for beginning to define and understand those concepts that were twisted and subverted and manipulated during their abuse, and they can begin to heal the damage that was done. Only the cross of Jesus. That's the only place. I'm not here to try to convince you to make some kind of big, sweeping, emotional decision for Jesus. What I want you to do is just allow him to begin to crack the doors of your heart a little bit today. If you have been running from God, because you know that coming to God will force you to reckon with what has happened to you in your past. My friends, you're running toward death, your own death, the spiritual death of so many other people in your lives. If you've been protecting yourself from God because you just don't know if you can face this stuff, the wound is too fresh, it happened too recently, or there's something about the church even that represents the kind of abuse that you had to endure, what I'm telling you is you can take a note out of Rachel's book You can go around all the backwards people who haven't figured it out yet, and you can go straight to Jesus. Jesus, who even now is scarred as you are. Who sits in eternity at the right hand of his Father because the work is done. That's why he's seated. And that work is done. It's done for him. It's done for you. And you can access that. So my hope and my prayer would be that this sermon does not encourage you to rush back into the arms of your abuser. It's a long road for a person who's been abusive to prove that they can be trustworthy again. 
My goal is for you to run into the open arms of your Savior, Jesus, and to let him do the work that only he can do and that you would find healing. That's what I want. That's what he wants for you. So let me pray that for you, and then we're going to sing to God this morning. Father, thank you for your finished work on the cross. Thank you for the advocacy that we have in you, in your perfect absorption of all the evil of sin. Your willingness, God, to even cry out, to be tortured, to be miserable, to be physically beaten within an inch of your life, and then to pass through spiritual death in order to pay the price for what we've done wrong. Teach us to trust you, God. Teach us to be people who are slow to rush into some new action plan, but instead quick to simply open our lives to you and wait and watch and listen and dwell with you, the giver of life. Would you bring us to life, God? Would you do healing? Would you heal to the nth degree? Would you create hundreds of walking miracles in this congregation and churches just like it all over the world? As we come into direct contact with your grace and mercy, God, would you heal us and would you make us new? We love you and we trust you and we rely on you to do this work. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.